Welcome to another episode of the Leaders in Education podcast, the official podcast for the Charlevoix-Emmett Intermediate School District, featuring voices in education. Today I am talking with Dr. Nell Duke, one of the world's foremost experts in early literacy education. Dr. Duke has been recognized numerous times, including being named one of the most influential education scholars in the United States by Education Week, a resource for K-12 education news and information. For more than 25 years, Dr. Duke served as a professor of education and psychology, first at Michigan State University and then at the University of Michigan. She's an author, researcher, speaker, consultant, and someone I am humbled to be speaking with. Dr. Duke, thank you for having this conversation with me. Oh, thank you for having me. So I'd like to start by asking if you would share what inspired you to dedicate your career to education, literacy, and psychology. Oh, thanks for asking. Um, I was a quirky kid and um, loved playing school at a very young age, Um, loved to play teacher to my younger sister, and really have wanted to be a teacher as long as I could remember. Hmm. Uh, By fifth grade, I was uh, sure I wanted to get a doctoral degree in educational psychology, (laughs) which I know seems very odd for a fifth grader, but um, I had a lot of uh, educators in my family and had access to a lot of books about education. I read Eric Erickson's Childhood and Society in fourth grade oh and just was completely um, enthralled. And so um, so it's been a longstanding interest. Um, the particular focus on literacy, I think, is just that I myself was was an, um, an avid reader and um, really just wanted to bring that ability to as many people as possible through my work. So you truly were inspired at a young age. That That's great. So I understand that in addition to serving as professor at the University of Michigan, that you're also currently the executive director of the Center for Early Literacy Success at Stand for Children. What led you to add that position to your work? Yeah, and for those who don't know, um, Stand for Children is a national um, public education and children's advocacy organization. And um, I really wanted in this phase of my career to, you know, continue to have a foot in academia, um, Mm -hmm. which, you know, I see as such an important place to generate research around um, the teaching of reading and writing for young children. But I also wanted to have a foot outside of academia in an organization that is dedicated to bridging gaps between research and policy and practice. Um, and so this is really a best of both worlds opportunity um, for me. And I'm, I'm really grateful to both University of Michigan and to Stand for Children for um, you know, allowing me to be part of their organization. Well, they are certainly fortunate to have you at the helm. So uh, look forward to hearing more about that. Uh, You know, teaching children to read is complex and arguably one of the most important things that we do in education. Yet across the nation, teaching reading seems to continue to present challenges. So from your perspective, what are the factors that you believe are preventing all students from learning to read? Yeah, that's a great question, and I'll underscore um, what you first said, that teaching to read is really complex, and I think that is one of the reasons why it continues to present challenges. Um, It's an incredibly complex um, psychological task um, to read, and there are many ways, unfortunately, that um, it can go wrong and right um, in the path of (laughs) development for children. So we know that um, some children are um, not learning to read because... Um, they are not getting the instruction that they need in how our code works, how our written language works. Um, So in English, um, our letters, as everyone Mm -hmm. knows, I'm sure, um, listening to this podcast, represent sounds. 
And um, one has to read, in order to read, one has to be able to look at those letters and connect them to sounds and blend those sounds to be able to pronounce the words. And that is actually not a natural skill, but a really sure, complex right. and difficult skill for people to learn. And even within that, there are, um, you know, a number of sort of milestones that can be a challenge. So for some kids, um, the early stages of where we're dealing with fairly simple kinds of words like consonant, short vowel, consonant words, um, they'll be okay. And then it's when we get to multisyllabic words where they're much more challenged, you know, being able mm -hmm. um, to have those more complex um, skills around managing English orthography. Um, so that's a whole chunk of uh, reasons uh, why some children have difficulty with reading. For other children, those issues I've just raised are not the problem. In other words, they become um, seemingly fluent readers. They sound uh, fluent and, yeah. you know, they're able to decode, you know, a grade levels um, set of words, um, but they're not understanding what they read, which is also important in reading. It's the point of reading, actually. Um, so for children in that situation, uh, there are a number of things, again, that could be um, presenting the challenge. Um, it could be a language processing kind of issue. Um, it could be that they don't have um, all of the vocabulary and background knowledge that the text they're reading assume they have. So that could be a challenge um, for them. It could be that they're approaching reading in a really passive way. So they're not really actively um, doing, making the kinds of cognitive moves that you have to make in reading, like sure. kind of reading between the lines at what the author isn't telling us and, and those kinds of things. So that can be an issue um, and others I won't even get into. <laughs> so there's that category. Um, and there are also children where um, one of the reasons that learning to read is really difficult has more to do with executive function or self-regulation. So for example, kids who have issues around attention and attentional <clears throat> difficulties um, often can have that affect both how they are able to engage with the instruction they're receiving, but also it can affect you know, the actual process of reading, it may be difficult for them to keep their attention on, say, um, you know, the meaning of the text that the author is trying to convey. So there are issues sure. there. Um, and for a lot of learners, you know, it's a complex combination of these factors um, that make um, learning to read difficult. The good news is that with, you know, very high quality tier one or regular classroom instruction and then high quality differentiated tier two and three um, intervention, meaning when I say differentiated intervention, meaning tailoring the intervention to what that child needs, you know, where their strengths are and where their needs are, um, we are going to be able to be successful with teaching most, not every single student, but most um, students, the vast majority um, sure. to read. There are some medical conditions that actually prevent um, children from ever reading, um, but um, those are quite rare and um, we really can get close to where we want to be, but we need to do sure. a lot to improve tier one, two, and three instruction. So I want to dive, continue to dive into the complexities. Um, you know, like most academic subjects, the gaps in literacy often mirror socioeconomic conditions. So I'd like to ask, what are one or two ways that you believe educators can ensure equitable access to high quality early literacy instruction so that every student, regardless of their location or background, has a chance? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, my number one for that question definitely is to hold high expectations for children. Mm. One of the really devastating um, research findings that has uh, come up in study after study over decades now is that teachers tend to hold lower expectations for children of lower socioeconomic status. And, you know, this is not something where I'm blaming teachers um, because right. teachers' expectations for children are shaped by all sorts of things um, from, from media to, you know, the administrators in their buildings to, you know, lots of other things. So um, this isn't a, a blame situation, but right. it is a fact from the research that um, lower expectations for children of lower socioeconomic status are pretty common. The problem with that is that our expectations for children have a direct impact on their achievement. And this mm. has also been shown in a number of studies. So that is, if we expect less of kids, we'll get less of kids. If we expect right. more of kids, we'll get more of kids. Um, it's, it's pretty much as uh, simple as that in, in certain respects. And so my number one is just believing that children of low socioeconomic status can uh, learn to read and learn to read well. We do have lots of case studies um, showing that uh, around um, the research literature. Um, there's a terrific podcast series called Extraordinary Districts um, that Ed Trust put together that gives lots of examples of districts with large percentages of kids with low socioeconomic status, nonetheless um, being very successful. And so I think just having those, um, holding those high expectations, believing that children can achieve with the right um, you know, educational moves in school, it would be my number one for educators. Okay. So speaking of high expectations, you know, the effectiveness of early literacy instruction really depends on the knowledge and skills of educators. So what ways do you believe schools can ensure that all teachers are prepared, continually engaged and informed about the latest research and best practices? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, I really want to appreciate one piece of your question particularly where you said continually engaged, because that's really key. Um, we've got to get out of the idea that, you know, you teach teachers a couple of courses on mm -hmm. literacy or even four courses on literacy as an undergrad, and then they're all set for their right. career. Um, that is no more the case for teachers than it is for doctors. Um, you, you certainly would not want to have a, a physician working with you whose, you know, last information about how to treat a particular condition came from, you know, 20 years ago in their med school <laughs> training, right? Um, so, you know, uh, Teacher preparation programs have a very important responsibility to lay groundwork to the extent that they can in, in the small amount of time that they have with teachers. But um, and that groundwork is very important. You know, they're on teachers understanding of things like how children read um, mm -hmm. and what kinds of instructional moves are going to support reading development. You know, those are that's important groundwork to lay in the college and university setting. But that development of expertise in teaching, reading, and literacy needs to be continually developed throughout the entire career of a teacher. Um, and so how uh, do we best do that? Based on the research that we have to date, I believe that a combination of instructional coaching in literacy and um, essentially teacher study groups um, are the most promising um, avenues. So just to expound on that a little bit. So, um, you know, coaching is a um, is a practice that has been found to be effective in mm -hmm. many, many, many studies. Um, having a coach 
you know, working with teachers on an ongoing basis in the ways that research suggests coaching should happen. So, for example, that the coach is spending, you know, most of their time in classrooms and most of their time working directly with teachers, um, that it's the partnership between teachers and coaches. It's not the coach coming in being evaluative or, you know, right. setting the agenda unilaterally or the like. Anyway, the coaching done the right way um, is really powerful. And we have many, many studies of that. So coaching to me is one of the key ways that we can continually engage teachers in learning about the latest research and best practices. Um, and then the other uh, thing I wanted to lift up is teacher study groups. And that's something some of your listeners may not have heard of. Um, it's a it's similar to PLCs or professional learning communities, but the distinction is that with teacher study groups, there's often more external um, influence on what's getting read, um, what's getting watched, what's mm -hmm. um, the focus of the um, the ongoing you know professional community among um, teachers in a particular building or district and. I think that that is important along with teachers own voices in what gets studied because it's just not practical to expect um, classroom teachers on top of everything else they're doing or individual coaches on top of everything else they're doing to also be able to keep up with all the latest research to be able to to sort through um, you know what different people are saying to figure out what's actually research aligned and what's not you know to pick professional books right. to read that can be trusted I mean it's just too much much to expect all of that to fall just on coach and um, teacher shoulders. And so providing these um, resources from trusted organizations, you know, from people whose professional, you know, job is focused mm -hmm. on research interpretation, research um, uh, elaboration, uh, and so forth, research connection, um, seems to me um, very promising just conceptually. And so far, that's exactly what research has, okay. has found, that teacher study groups can be a real powerful way to support teachers' development. Great. Well, speaking of research, there, there's a lot of research around the impact of early literacy experiences for children. So what are the ways that you believe schools can enlist parents and families in preparing children to be literate? Yeah, that's another great question. I think the first thing to say here is that families are preparing children to be literate every day. Every time they say something to their children, um, every time they say something around their children that their children hear, um, or in hearing families right, or see right. in, in signing families. Um, every time that, you know, families take a child somewhere, um, even if it's, you know, just on the bus or to a, a local store, that's building children's knowledge. And building children's knowledge and language is very important to their literacy development, as mentioned uh, earlier. So, um, so families are already doing that, and I think it's important for us to have that orientation, that sort of strengths and assets orientation toward families. Um, what can we do to help families do even more to support children's right. literacy development? Um, there has been a lot of research in this area, and I will say that, um, you know, a number of efforts that have been tried uh, when tested in research haven't worked. Um, but one pattern you generally see is that when um, work with families focuses on families drawing on what's already happening in their homes, in mm -hmm. their communities, um, things that they're already doing and how to enhance those, that tends to work better than trying to turn families into like tutors or trying to get families gotcha. to, to essentially reenact, you know, the kinds of interventions or tutoring that we would like to see at school. 
Um, so for example, there's um, some research by Deanna Leva and her colleagues about using um, families, and this is particularly with families who are um, Latino, Latina, um, the families, um, just engaging them in mealtime conversations or, you know, taking advantage of the mealtime conversations and, and the um, kind of experiences families have around meals already and just um, doing some intervention to um, enhance some of the literacy and math in those mealtime conversations. That's one promising um, approach. Um, I was part of um, some work where we developed a series of um, workshops for families and we focused on different parts of the home. What can you be doing when you're in the kitchen um, to support children's literacy development? What can you be doing when you're out running errands to support literacy development and so on? And we were able to get positive effects on young children's language and literacy development from um, that approach. So those are just examples of approaches that have been found to be effective that tend to um, really focus on just helping families interweave within their normal daily routines, you know, the normal strengths mm -hmm. and assets of the family, uh, ways to support um, literacy development. So as you've hinted to previously, there are a lot of promising practices happening in schools currently. What are your thoughts on the role of the school principal, though, in terms of early literacy development? It's a great question, and, and we do have quite a bit of um, research to suggest, and if anyone wants to read sort of a reader-friendly account of some of this work, the Wallace Foundation has funded um, some, some really compelling um, work in this area, but um, the, um, the principle is very important to promoting um, literacy development, um, and in fact, supporting academic development in general. Um, the principal matters a lot. In fact, it's probably the single most important <laughs> individual within a building in terms of influencing the building's long-term um, achievement rather than um, a number of other roles in the building you might name. Um, so principals are really important and um, there are a number of things principals can do um, to support literacy development. And since this is a Michigan podcast, I can't help but make reference for everybody to the uh, website literacyessentials.org, literacyessentials.org, um, which is um, from the Michigan Association of Intermediate School Administrators, General Education Leadership Network, Early Literacy Task Force. The um, website has um, essential practices for um, principals, for leaders um, in buildings, and um, I definitely suggest checking that out. That has 10 moves that principals, along with their instructional leadership teams, can make to um, really support literacy development in a building, and those practices are based on our, um, you know, on research that mm -hmm. has been um, conducted to date in this area. I really appreciate you surfacing that uh, for our listeners, and uh, that's something we uh, we both agree is is critical as a resource for, for our schools today. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, sure. Just um, quickly, um, I know lots of your listeners are hearing the phrase science of reading and maybe wondering um, what is that or, mm -hmm. you know, is that different from what I'm doing and so forth. And so I just wanted to do a quick primer that sure. science of reading refers to the body of research findings around reading. Um, so findings on how reading progresses, um, findings on reading instruction, finding, uh, findings on reading intervention. Um, and um, it's not new. Been around for many, arguably for over a hundred years. Um, we've had science of reading, um, and 
So many of your listeners are actually familiar with findings from science of reading, mm-hmm. even if they didn't know that that was the you know current uh, term that that some folks are using for it. Uh, the term itself, by the way, dates back decades. Um, so I just wanted to you know clarify a little bit what science of reading is and encourage folks to reach out to organizations that you know you can trust. Um, the What Works Clearinghouse um, is a great resource, for example, um, for you to look at. Obviously, I think literacyessentials.org is a good place to look. So really trying to, um, you know, continue to reach out to sources you trust, to voices um, of researchers who have done the scientific research on reading and um, really make sure to um, to continue to try to learn and grow in, in the important understandings about how reading develops and how we can support it. I'm glad that you surfaced that. Thank you. Um, so I've been talking with Dr. Nell Duke about literacy, its challenges and opportunities, and the importance of high expectations. Thank you, Dr. Duke, for having this conversation and inspiring me and countless others to learn more about ways we can ensure all students can learn to read. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Leaders in Education podcast. Please check out our archive for past episodes. And remember, the great thing about learning is that you never have to stop.